Well, good morning and welcome to our morning worship service. Two other announcements that I just remembered. Uh, Greg Weinfurtner's wife, Kathy, has COVID, so please remember her. Uh, and um, the other announcement is some of you know Bob and Brenda West. Bob has filled the pulpit here many times. Uh, I've known Bob 50 years. Uh, dear brother in the Lord lives up in the Dover, New Philadelphia area. Uh, Brenda's mother has been ill for a while and she just passed. So remember Brenda uh, and Bob as they, the service there will be Tuesday up there, memorial service for Martha Meek. She was a member of Dover Bible Church where I used to be assistant pastor back in the 70s. <laughs> and uh, uh, so she's... Um, uh, so do remember uh, that service that it would be for the Lord's glory and for the encouragement of the family. Okay, we're going to uh, look at the Gospel of Luke again in chapter 12. We're finishing up this chapter and even moving into the next chapter today picking up the pace a little bit, we think. So that's the plan. Uh, I'm assuming, those of you that have been with us, that you have retained some of what we've been teaching and uh, realized the Lord Jesus is ministering to a vast crowd of people and to his disciples at the same time. And he's responding to uh, questions and observations from the crowd. One was very bad, very off topic. Uh, the other was from Peter that was very much on topic. And he'll have another one in 13.1. Seems like the Lord couldn't teach without being interrupted. And uh, it seemed like it happened a lot. Um, some, I, I know if, you, if you've ever been at a place where there's been translation from one language to another, and I've had the privilege of doing that on different mission fields. Some people call the translators the interrupters. <laughs> uh, because they're, whatever you're saying, they say again, and you have to learn, all right, this sermon's an hour sermon, but I gotta make it a half hour one because it's gotta be said twice, and you gotta use shorter, give the, you can't do but 10 minutes of something and let the, the interrupter remember it all. It's a little different experience. But uh, Jesus is getting real interruptions here, and he's dealing with all of them. We are now in verse 49, and 49 to 59 uh, finish this chapter. But as you know, the chapter divisions, which are very, very helpful, but they're man-made. They came afterwards. They were not in the original text. Uh, these are man-made things to help us find verses. Uh, they're not part of the original Bible. And so, uh, actually, the verses uh, 1 to 7, uh, and clear down to verse 9, excuse me, 1 to 9 of chapter 13, go with the flow of this section and should be included. If I was making the chapter divisions, I would start the new one in 1310. Uh, but... Nobody asked me when they put those in. 
So we're going to read uh, 49, uh, chapter 12, and we'll, we'll just stop with uh, 59 for time's sake, and then we'll, Lord willing, move on. Jesus said, I'm come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I constrained until it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I'm come to give peace on earth? I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against her mother, and the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Wow, that just takes a bit of just about every relationship in the home, doesn't it? Because you never know which one's going to get saved first. And then that creates division. Uh, or how many are going to get saved and how many are not yet. And, and, and so that's what he's talking about. Verse 54. And he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you see there comes a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it comes to pass. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what's right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, as thou art on the way, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell you, thou shalt not depart from there, till you paid the last mite. And 1 to 9 of 13 is dealing with the same issue there. Father, help me to speak and help each of us to hear. Uh, we pray your grace in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, as we, the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ to consummate history and fulfill biblical prophecy and bring about the astonishing changes that are going to happen when the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he'll reign forever and ever. If the Lord was here, there'd be no war in Ukraine, right? There'd be no war anywhere because the Prince of Peace has come. And... Uh, is going to rule the whole earth at his second coming. And what a blessed thing that is. Now the Lord Jesus in chapter 12 has been speaking about some of the changes that are going to happen in the second coming. One of the biggest ones is verse 32 of chapter 12. It, little children, it's your father's goodwill to give you the kingdom. I'd say that's pretty big. If you know what the kingdom is. That's a pretty big thing to get. Uh, that includes the millennial kingdom. That includes the eternal kingdom. It's gonna, he's going to give you the kingdom. It's a gift to his followers. And it's a big thing. And he mentions other things too. The servants being rewarded and dealt with and all that stuff. Uh, and uh, put over everything he's got. A lot of things we've already looked at. There's good things coming. Big changes coming. Now, there are political leaders that want to change the world. They all seem to want to do that, you know. President Biden wants to do that. Uh, 
Putin wants to do it. Xi Jinping wants to do it. Political leaders are never satisfied with the way things are. They always feel they have to make a mark in history and change things. And some of those are good changes, some of them are bad changes, depending on your viewpoints and depending on the changes. But the biggest change ever is coming when the kingdoms of this world are going to be made the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Those are permanent changes. Nobody's ever going to outdo, undo those. Once they're in force, they're in force forever. And that's a wonderful thing and it's a glorious thing. And I, I, I would love to just preach on the changes that are going to happen when Jesus comes. We've taught, we've taught on a few of them. Our getting the kingdom is just one little thing. That's when the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's when children will play on the adder's den. That's, that's when there will be no more sickness, no more death. There's wonderful changes are happening and, and, and when the Lord comes, immediately when he comes. And so we're excited about that. Things, gonna, things are going to be a lot different when Jesus comes the second time than the way they are now. Satan will be bound. What an exciting thing that will be. So as we think about those changes, most many of us get very excited about it. We say, even so, come Lord Jesus uh, hope it's today, and I do too. But in verse 49, the Lord reverts back from his second coming teaching to teaching about his first coming. You see, he comes twice. He's already come once, and everybody was waiting for that. He did that, but he promised when he came the first time that he was going to return. And verse 49 he reverts back to his first coming. And sometimes we get so excited about the, uh, the uh, consummation uh, of history at our Lord's second coming that we, we uh, forget some of the significance of the first coming. Because that also was significant. The world was very different before Jesus came. Very, very different. And our Lord initiated some great changes at his uh, first coming. And he's going to talk about that. So it's not just the, the, uh, the, uh, the second coming that we should be excited about. How about the first coming? Remember... While Jesus is teaching here, he's on his way to the cross. He is en route to Jerusalem to die. He's been to Jerusalem before, but this time he's going to go to be killed, crucified. And it, it, he's on his way to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, and what we call Good Friday, and what we call Easter and he's on his way with destiny. And he knows it. He knows it. And uh, this will be his last public appearance in Jerusalem at his first coming until he comes back the second time. So it's very, very significant stuff. And you'll note where we are 
if you slip over to 1322, he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He's left Galilee. He's on his way down to Jerusalem. And he's teaching on the way. We've taken several trips with Chinese students over the years. And uh, my wife doesn't let me drive because I teach while I drive. She thinks that's dangerous because she knows how monomaniac I am and I get refocused. So she wants somebody else to be driving so I can teach. But I love to teach on the way. Uh, if we take a trip with the Chinese students, I'll teach on the way wherever we're going, and teach on the way back, on the way over, on the way back. And we've gone to different places. We've gone to DC, we've gone to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, we've gone to the Creation Museum. We've done different things uh, together. I think a bunch of us went to the Wright-Patterson Air Base uh, Museum. We've, gone, we've done different things. Love teaching while on the way there and teaching on the way back. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He didn't need a pulpit to teach. He didn't need to be stationary to teach. What he was saying was so important, he wanted everybody to hear it. And he's got thousands of people with him listening to this. So that's the picture. Now, what we've read in 12.49 and what we will read in 13.1-9 are three great revelations of Jesus Christ about the significant events of his first coming. Of his first coming. And I want you to look at those with me this morning. Uh, let me just list these and I'll be going back over them. There's three of them. Three great revelations by Jesus Christ about the significance of his first coming that we all need to know. Number one, the first coming of Jesus Christ will be the cause of intense division and not peace. It's very clearly what he's teaching in 49 to 53. The first coming of Jesus Christ will be the cause of intense division and not peace. Second, the first coming of Jesus Christ requires increased discernment, not passivity. Verses 54 to 56. So division, discernment. Intense division is going to happen because of his first coming. And increased discernment is needed in light of that division. Third, the first coming of Christ requires immediate decision not prevarication. So the three key words are division, discernment, decision. So he is the cause of this division and he calls for discernment and he challenges men and women, boys and girls to a decision. There's an intense division and uh, there is uh, immediate Decision required in light of it. Okay, let's look at this and let's think through it a little bit. You know, both the book of Hebrews 1 to 2, God has spoken to us in Son. Book of 1 John, the two lights now shining. There are so many lessons that show about these great changes at the second coming. But what the Lord is doing here now is charges 
He's giving charges because of the first coming. So he's back off the second coming and giving the changes at the second coming and causing charges in light of the first coming. Okay, let's go back. Let's start it in verse uh, 12, verse 49. Intense division. Now I want to ask you before we even read this, when we read it, we, in your mind will you say, Did, has this happened or not? Jesus said it's going to happen. Has there been a division because of the first coming? Have families been divided? Have people been divided? That weren't divided before? That would never be divided if Jesus just hadn't come down. This is what Jesus predicted. Uh, verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I constrained till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I'm come to give peace on the earth. Now he will at the second coming give peace on the earth. But now he's coming to bring division. First coming brings division. Second coming brings peace. I tell you nay but rather division. For from henceforth. That's what Jesus said before it happened. He said this. For from henceforth there will be five in one house divided. Three against two. Two against three. And uh, so forth and so on. The father divided against the son. Son against the father. Mother against the daughter. Daughter against the mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So what's he talking about here? Uh, he says, I've come for the express pur purpose to start a fire. And that fire is going to divide people. And I'm come to a baptism. Now he was already baptized, right? Jesus was baptized three years before this in water. He's talking about being submerged in the fires of hell while he's on the cross. So submersion in suffering. He's talking about the cross and the urgency of the cross because the division can't happen until he dies. His death will bring about that division. His death and resurrection. That's, that's an awesome picture here. Now, some say this fire is the Holy Spirit. Some say it's the gospel message. Some say it's the true Christians that are the fire. You know, the fire fell on them at Pentecost and all that. Uh, it's certainly, it, uh, certainly what happened was the Holy Spirit came, empowered the church to proclaim the gospel, and then division starts happening. You see that division in Acts chapter 2 where people save themselves from the crooked generation and repudiate those who crucified Jesus who were their neighbors and friends and leaders. You see it in Acts uh, all the way through the book of Acts to the end in chapter 28. Some believe and some believe not. All the way through the book of Acts you got division. You got division among Jews from Jews. And then the gospel goes out to Gentiles and you got division between Gentiles and Gentiles. Everything was quiet till the gospel shows up. Jesus foresaw this. Jesus predicted that. And he's basically saying the events of my death, burial, and resurrection will be Holy Spirit empowered and preached as a message of good news, but that's going to cause division of the most painful kind. A division within families. 
<coughs> but all of me calls peace when he comes back, but immediate calls will be division. Now, division among families in matters of religion were almost unheard of in the ancient world. You know, we Americans, we're cowboys. We do our own thing. We, we, what our parents do, it doesn't matter to us. We'll do our thing. That's America. That's not most of the world, even today. Most of the world, in a way that we Americans don't grasp, think in terms of family units and loyalty to family. And certainly was that way in the Jewish culture. And just unheard of. Families worshipped as a family. And you know that was that way in the pagan world. You worshipped the God your parents worshipped. But just un almost unheard of that you would change religions. And so uh, the, the ancient world thought differently than American cowboy people think. They thought in terms of a family unit. And they would go as a family to worship. By the way, that's where America was when my youth, in the 1950s, families went to church together. We sat together in church. My parents, all four kids, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle. We sat on the back row because some of us kids were bad. <laughs> and we could be taken out without disturbing 800 people or so that were in the church. But we, we, we worshiped as a family and we all went to my grandma's house on, to eat afterwards. And so that was my youth. That's not today very much, is it? <coughs> so for many, many different reasons. But the ancient world thought in, as a family unit. The synagogues, very much so. The temple, you go down as a family. Remember, that's what, when Jesus stayed behind, oh, you don't do that. When your family goes, you go. I must be about my father's business. So all these things are interesting when you think about that. So what Jesus is saying is the teaching about my death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to provoke opposition and division. Merle Tenney said, Our Lord realized that his mission was divisive and disturbing. He saw clearly that the cross would be a point of controversy and argument. But he also said Judaism was a family religion in which people worshipped as households rather than as individuals. Jesus foresaw that his claims would cut across family life and would ne necessitate individual decisions. And isn't that true? Some of you, very painfully, have had, when you've come to faith in Christ, you've had to stand up against what your parents and grandparents and ancestors by the way, Abraham had to do that. Didn't he? When Jews tell me, uh, I can't go against the religion of my fathers, I say, well, Abraham did. His, his parents were, ancestors were idolaters. So, but the, here's what Jesus foresaw. William Graham Scroggie said, the baptism was the cross, the burning is the controversy which it engendered. And, but that doesn't mean always families were divided or always, it always happened that, remember the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. 
And they all got saved together as a family. And you see that in Acts 10, Cornelius, everybody got saved, not just his family, but his friends, his neighbors, everybody else, they all got saved. Now that happens sometimes. But other times it happens where one gets saved first, which is usually the way it works. And when God saves one person in a family, it's because he has an interest in the rest of the family. I can prove that from 1 Corinthians 7. How do you know a wife whether you'll save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you'll save your, your wife? And so there, when God saves one person, it's because he's got others in mind to reach as well. Doesn't promise they'll be saved, but he wants them to be. And he's planting a light in that place. And of course, nothing divides a family like the gospel. I mean, this is deep stuff. <laughs> There's families, they don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. Some do, but they still love you and it's, oh, they tolerate you. Right? Or if you, want, if you want the Cincinnati Reds or some other ball team, okay, we'll tolerate you. Those differences are okay. But when it comes to spiritual things, all of a sudden, there's difficulty. It might be aggression that's active. It might be passive aggression. But Christians feel it, and it's painful. And Jesus predicted all of it. Now, it doesn't necessarily get to the Hatfield and McCoy level, but it can. And Jesus predicted these problems. And Jesus knew he was going to die. I've got a baptism to be baptized with, and I'm constrained till it is accomplished. It, someone said the prospect of his sufferings was a perpetual Gethsemane. He didn't just think about it when he was in Gethsemane. It was before him, long before he got to Jerusalem. And the urge of the cross was on the Lord. He wanted the cross to happen. He wanted to die. He wanted to be risen from the dead. He wanted it because he knew that had to happen before the division could happen. And the division needed to happen, and he wanted it to happen. Because a world united in unbelief is a lost world under judgment. The whole world lies under the, in the arms of the wicked one. In opposition to God and in unity to Satan. And that, that unity needs to be broken. Unity is not always good. Unity is often good. But not all, if it's if unified in the wrong thing. And sometimes a wife will save her husband. A believing wife will save her husband, right? 1 Peter 3, 1. Sometimes uh, 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 one Christian will be able to be a means of bringing other Christians to Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, remember the woman at the well? Jesus led her to himself and she said, come Show me a man told me everything I ever did. Isn't this the Christ? That one woman became an agent of ministry to a whole city. And boy, Jesus went in there and divided the whole place. They were divided against the Jews, but they were united with each other. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And Jesus calls another division. Now we got Christians. Remember uh, Matthew 16, is the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means the church is on offense and unbelief is on defense. Gates are a defensive 
weapon. And behind those gates is every unbeliever. And on the front of those gates is every believer. Praying. Ministering. Loving. Confronting their family and friends. Doing everything to rescue them. And uh, Jesus will mention this in chapter 14. If you slip over there, verse 25. He said, There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoa, what's that all about? It means you become a Christian, you're going to pay a price. Some of your own family's not going to like you. And you've got to love God more than you love them. It doesn't mean hate them like you hate them. It means you love God more than you love them. And aren't families one of the gates of Satan? I can't go against my family. Aren't friends one of the gates of Satan? The gates of hell? I've got I to gotta have my friends. Aren't workplaces sometimes the gates of hell? I'll lose my job if I become a Christian. Or I won't get my PhD if I become a Christian. They won't graduate me. All these things can be a gate to keep you locked in to unbelief popular opinion or the latest philosophy of the day can be a gate. You're behind the gate. That's why Leon Morris said some things are more important than peace. And sometimes his message and the way it's received means division. And uh, you know, one of the reasons the Jews hated Christianity is because it divided families that were united in unbelief. And by the way, that's why the Romans hated it and persecuted Christians for 400 years because it divided Rome, divided families. They didn't like it. They preferred a unity that would ultimately be destructive. Turn with me to Acts 19. I want to read you a couple of places in Acts Remember Luke Acts is two volume work. Acts 19.23 The gospel came to the city of Ephesus which is kind of like the uh, San Francisco of Turkey and it, it's right on the coast big city and at that same time 1913 there arose no small stir about that way. The gospel did not come quietly into Ephesus. It started a big problem. And of course, people were getting saved, burning their magic books and getting out of the occult. Demons were all kinds of stuff. Had control of the whole city till Paul got there. And then people got upset. For a certain man, Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver sh- shrines for Diana, brought no small gain under the craftsmen. This is typical tourism, right? You go someplace and everybody's making little uh, leaning towers of Pisa or <laughs> whatever, wherever you're at, they're making little things for you to buy as souvenirs. And they were making little idols and the idol business was off because too many people were getting saved. Would to God that would happen here. 
And he called together the workmen of like occupation and says, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned many people saying, there are no gods which are made with hands. And so that not only this, our craft is in danger. Now that was the real reason he was upset. They weren't selling as many little idols. So not only is this, our craft in danger, is said it not, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And that started a big riot, didn't he? I mean, thousands and thousands of people rioting uh, just this one thing. Because they didn't like the gospel coming into Ephesus. Now, thank God it did. Thank God Ephesus became a, a, a wonderful church and many people were saved, not just there, but in other surrounding communities. Turn to Acts 17.6. This is Thessalonica. We have the book of Thessalonians as a result of this visit to Thessalonica. It says in 17.5, But the Jews who believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain vile fellows of the baser sort. Now normally they wouldn't hang out with these people, but they wanted to riot and didn't want to get blamed for it. So they, they go out and hire people to riot. Does that sound familiar? There's a lot of money. Some of the riots have taken place in America under the table. These people are paid rioters. And gathered a company and set all the city in uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring him out to the people. This would have been death for these people. I think most of you who know church history knows that John Wesley, the preacher of a couple hundred years ago, started the Methodist church. He had two houses torn down trying to kill him. They tore the houses down trying to get to him. Somehow he escaped. So this is not a new thing. I think they were a little bit mad. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and a certain brethren to the rulers of the city, crying, these that, have these that have turned the world upside down are come here also. Now, not every one of your Bibles translates it that way. The, the Greek phrase here is anastato. It means driven from home. Literally, according to Abbott Smith, instead of turn the world upside down, driven for home. So these people considered Thessalonica their home, and that city's divided now, and they're upset about it. Boy, they never forgot it. They were mad at Paul ever since then. So that's the picture here. And uh, may God help us to see it and grasp it. As Harry Ironside said, the cross was to divide the world. And it did. And William Kelly said, division in families in no way was because the grace of Christ itself promoted discord, but because man's evil fighting against the truth, which puts it in the light, and man's hatred refuses that which it does not feel the need. So that division was predicted when Jesus was a little baby, Luke 2, 34 and 35. It was predicted by John the Baptist in 317, and now Jesus predicts it again. And it's not the gospel that's to blame, but the corrupt hearts of men that won't receive it. Now, Jesus says, I'm totally governed by this 
uh, going to the cross until it happens. He had what somebody called holy impatience. He wanted to get it on, get it over with, get the gospel out. And as he moved towards, he got more interested in getting it done. There's a great need for the atonement to happen. Atonement needs to be accomplished before it can be applied. And it can't be applied till it's accomplished. And it can't be applied without division. Because there'll be some that believe and some believe not. And God's sovereign purposes are going to be happening here. And it's kind of fascinating that Jesus speaks rather cryptically here. Nobody understood what he was saying when he said, I've got a baptism to be baptized and I constrain till it is accomplished. Nobody understood at the time when he said, I've got a fire that I want to get set. What? But after he died on the cross and rose again, and the Holy Spirit came, oh, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. So they can look back after the events happen and say, he was talking about the cross, obvious. He was talking about uh, the Holy Spirit coming and the gospel going out. Now we know what he meant. And he did many such things. John Brown mentions many prophecies like this. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. They didn't understand any of that until after the event. But after the event, they said, he knew what was going on. And it was such a blessing to them. He, he lists several more. Uh, so very interesting. Now all this helps us to embrace the division when it happens. It happens and it's painful and it's hard. Nobody likes their family to be against them. But we know that God's in it and we have, we have a responsibility in it and it helps us to embrace it even when it's painful. Now, there are many that just won't take that. They're locked in. I've got to have my friends. I've got to have my family. They make a God out of their family, God out of their friends, God out of their culture. And they, 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 a lot of unbelief is not because of intellectual things. It's because of these things. These kind of things are the gates of hell, pressures that people put on uh, others. Uh, the world wants you to be conformed to them. They insist on that. The gospel always causes conflict. But this division is necessary. And it, there's going to be a greater division in the coming judgment day. So better to be divided now than divided then. And we have no choice but to embrace that so that others can be with us in eternity. Malachi 3, 13 and 18. Daniel 1, the 3. John 5, 24, 29. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 speaks about the division at the end of history. And that's a permanent one. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So the division now is a challenge to the status quo and by those in front of the gates of hell to challenge those behind the gates. Second, Jesus is going to talk about discernment. Discernment. Inward discernment. Go back to Luke chapter 12 and verse 54. And he also said to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west 
straight you straightway you'll say, there comes a shower. That's what Elijah's servant said, right? <laughs> and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it comes to pass. Remember, if you know the geography of the Holy Land, oh, the west is Mediterranean. So the, mo air, the air will be moist. Wind's coming from the west, we got rain coming. If the wind's coming from the south, you got heat coming. That's desert. And when you see the south wind one blow, you'll say, it'll be heat, and it comes to pass. You hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, and how is it you do not know discern how to discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? Very interesting thing here. Discernment, discernment, discernment. They didn't know the signs. You know, they didn't know them because they didn't want to know them. God made it very clear in the Old Testament what was going to happen when the Messiah would come. They didn't want to know. They didn't care to know. If you ask the average unbeliever who's proud of his unbelief, um, just a few basic questions. They're very proud of their unbelief. I wouldn't believe that fairy tale stuff. Uh, how many books are in the Bible? Nine out of ten, at least, couldn't tell you. They're proud of their unbelief, but they've never read enough to even know how many books are in the Bible. If you ask them, name three prophecies in the Old Testament predicted the death, resurrection, and burial and resurrection of Jesus. They couldn't do it. If you hold a gun to their head, which I don't, don't do that. <laughs> they couldn't do it, you know. They couldn't do it. But their life's at stake. But they don't even, the, the, the witness of fulfilled prophecy is incredible. That the death of Christ was pictured and prophesied thousands of years before it happened. So and the whole testament is all about that. But they don't know that. What's the temple mean? What's the sacrifices mean in the Jewish temple? What is that foreshadowing? What is God dwelling among his people foreshadowing with the tavern? They don't know, and they don't know because they don't care. Other things are more important. Other things are all important. Just like these climate change people. They're the normal people watching the weather. You say, well, don't you believe in climate change? Sure I do. I believe in spring, summer, fall, and winter. And I do believe that climate changes. And I do believe there's something to it, possibly. I know there's something else going on, namely one world government plans to use it for that. But I, I will give you there is that kind of thing. It can be a problem. Is it the ultimate problem? No. It's not. People are worried deeply that this planet might become uninhabitable. But they have no care of an eternal place that will be unbearable, but inhabited forever. Something's really out of whack with mankind. Earl Tenney said, Jesus' contemporaries did not realize the importance of his coming nor the seriousness of rejecting him. And the reason they didn't is everything else was more important to them than religion, even though they were supposed to be religious. Have you ever met people like that? 
You can talk to them about anything except the gospel. And they're interested in all kinds of stuff. And some of it's really interesting. And they're experts in these things. They can become an expert in religion if they wanted to. They can become experts in the Bible if they wanted to. And say, I've studied it and there's nothing to it. I know it now. They don't even do that. Most of them. With few exceptions. Just write it off. Um... Daryl Bach said, Jesus is calling on his audience to note the nature of time. A time when God is making divisions among people. A time when people should be able to see what God's doing through Jesus. And a time when Israel had better respond before uh, becoming nationally culpable for rejecting God's message. And basically Jesus said, how can you miss what's going on with my ministry? I've done miracles more than anybody ever did. And if I hadn't done that, you'd be without sin in rejecting me. He speaks like no man ever no man ever spoke like this man. They admitted that. Didn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter to an unbeliever. We think we throw evidence at him. That'll, huh, I throw this evidence for the Bible at him. That'll make him believe. No. There's plenty of evidence. They don't want the evidence. They're comfortable in unbelief. Their interests are elsewhere. Only God can turn that away. And Satan saying, look at this shiny object over here. Look at this shiny object over here. Don't look at Jesus. Don't look at the gospel. Don't pay attention to the Christians. I got this for you to be occupied with. So discernment. Very important. Uh, Leon Moore said they were unable to see the true nature of the times because they did not want to see it. I've got to date myself. There was an old song, a love song, back in the 50s. And I only have eyes for you. Some of you who are a little older know that song. You know the song. My love must be a kind of blindness. I can't see anyone but you. The stars are out tonight. I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. I only have eyes for you. I won't read the rest of them. I got them here if you're interested. The unbeliever only has eyes for the things of this life and not for God and not for eternity. They're focused on other things. This life and the things of this life dominate their attention. Do you know anybody like that? They talk about anything and everything except spiritual things. Kind of odd, isn't it? You could know them for 50 years and they would never once bring it up. Tell me about the gospel. They're very comfortable in belief. So Jesus is calling for discernment. He's calling for discernment in the light of the times and people around him where there's no sustained real interest. By the way, a lot of these people wanted to get healed, but they weren't interested in the message. So, Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. He was in the world, he was made the world, and the world received him not. So, you, their first division, then discernment. See the importance of what's going on. Third, decision. Immediate decision before it's too late. Life 
your life and mine has very serious decisions to be made, right? Who you're going to marry, that's kind of important. I'd say that's up there pretty high. That's bigger than what you're going to do in life, right? What you're going to do in life is kind of important. What will be my career? What am I going to major in? What am I going to do? Who you're going to marry is even bigger than that. Uh, th those are big decisions. And there's other big decisions. Uh, how am I going to spend my life? What hobbies am I going to have? What, what kind of interest am I going to have? What am I going to do in that way? What school am I going to? Should I buy this or that? But the biggest decision of all, the biggest decision is I need to get right with my Creator. That's the biggest one. How can I get right with God? And that's why Jesus is saying in verse 57, Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what's right? When you go with your adversary to a magistrate, as thou art on the way, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell you, you'll not depart from there till you pay the very last mite. A mite is a fraction of a penny, which means you're never getting out. <laughs> it's an interesting fast. The need for decision in the picture here, someone's guilty, and another person's taking them to court. And the guilty person says, I'm going to court and I'm guilty. And if I go before the judge, I'm going to get a harsh sentence. It's going to cost me big time. And they're offered to settle out of court. Well, it just makes sense, right? If you're guilty and you know you can't defend yourself, settle out of court. All right, you did this. You're going to get life or we're going to execute you. But if you settle out of court and cough up some information, we'll give you 10 years. And you know they got the goods on you. So you settle out of court. If you go to court, you're, you're going to get convicted, you're going to be sentenced, and it's going to be worse for you. That happens all the time, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking to a world of guilty people. <laughs> now, not guilty people are going to say, no, no, I'm going to defend myself. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not afraid of court. Now, some innocent people might say, court's too expensive, I'll just settle. You know. But the point is, you've got a narrow window of time to save yourself a lot of pain. Because it's going to be more expensive to go to court than not go to court. And it's going to be more painful. Especially if you're guilty. And so, I know there's all kinds, I'm not trying to, cover all decisions here or give advice for all the court systems you get into. I'm not trying to do that. I'm simply, that's his illustration here. And the point is we are guilty and there's a very narrow window of time to make a decision before it's too late. But to make this decision, now let's tie these points together. To make this decision, you must have discernment. And to have discernment, you must understand and grasp the spiritual divisions that are going on. So all these things kind of go together. Now 13 comes in with that. In these first verses here, quickly, if you just look, there were present at the season some that told him that the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Whoa, that's gory. Killed people while they're worshiping. 
And Jesus answered and said, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things, because there was atrocity? If somebody lives where atrocities are going on, is that because they're really bad and God's punishing them? There's some people who think, yep, that's it, Job, you're bad, you got, you got trouble. Jesus said, I tell you no, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Of the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, you think they were sinners above men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Where it comes to atrocities or tragedies, Jesus says, the people that suffer in those things aren't worse than anybody else. The point we learn from atrocities and tragedies is this isn't heaven. This isn't the coming kingdom. We're in a bad place. We all need to repent. This isn't the world God made. There was no death. There were no atrocities and tragedies in the world until Adam and Eve fell. That came later. So this is a picture here, and it's a good picture. And for Jesus, total depravity and universal guilt of the whole human race are assumed here in his very teaching. Now, some people aren't occupied about coming wrath. They're occupied with atrocities and tragedies here. And by the way, we should respond to atrocities and tragedies. I believe the church should react to people in trouble like we're trying to do with Ukraine today. Or if a tornado hits or something like that. But temporal tragedies and temporal atrocities are nothing compared to what's coming in judgment. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And people have a very limited window in which to get right. And that's verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. He tells this little parable, and I'll, with this I'll close. He spoke to this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. And he came and sought fruit on it and found none. So this guy owns a vineyard and he plants a fig tree in it. And, he, and normally it takes three years for a fig tree to bear fruit. And he sought the fruit when it was supposed to be due, and he didn't find any. Then he said to the dresser of the vineyard, this is the guy managing the vineyard for him, Behold, these three years I came seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbers it the ground? So the owner says, This thing is a liability. It's not productive, and it's taking stuff out of the soil. We could be doing something better. Just cut this thing down. Three years is enough. And the vine dresser said to him, Lord, let it alone this year also, and I'll dig about it and fertilize it. I'll dig it and dug it. I'll loosen the soil. It's earthbound, and I'll fertilize it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after, you'll cut it down. He doesn't say, I'll cut it down. <laughs> Just give me a little more time with it. What an interesting parable. And picture here is there's a limited time to bear fruit. There's a limited time to respond now, the fig tree's in a vineyard. By the way, that's a very unusual thing. You don't need a fig tree in a vineyard. I didn't see that for myself, and I've taught Luke for years, and then A.B. Bruce pointed it out. It, you know, Israel thought, we're the vine. We're, we have some inherent uh, privileges here. He didn't say a vine was in a vineyard and didn't bring fruit. He said a fig tree was in a vineyard. So anything Israel had, the Jewish people had, was, get, was grace. And I like figs and I like grapes, but they're different. <laughs> and so uh, that's the picture here. So it's emphasizing the grace of them even being what they are. And this fig tree had no inherent reason to be or any necessity to be in the vineyard. It was only that it was decided to be put there. 
and then there's only a small window of time to produce fruit. And of course, the NIV Bible says the fig tree is probably the Jewish state, but in, it can also be the individual soul. And John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance, but these folks weren't doing it. Some people, in fact, many people are not saved because they don't really think they're guilty. They haven't produced any fruit. They think, you know, I'm good. They're blind and deaf to what God's doing. They're blind and deaf to what, uh, what uh, they need to be doing and not doing. Don't you know hundreds of people like that? Uh, were we not ourselves once like this? Oblivious to the obvious? There's a poem. I'll read this and then I'm done. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent, ye who from God depart. What it is today, while it is today, repent and harden, not your heart. An old Puritan was dying, David Dixon. And he had written a famous commentary on the Westminster Confession. He was a very esteemed old man. And his friends gathered around him's bed and they asked him what he was thinking when he was dying. I might mention this tonight at Frank's service. And the old man looked at them knowing he was dying and he said, well, years ago, I took all my sins and put them in a pile. And then I took all my good works and put it in the same pile. And then I ran to Jesus. In other words, he wasn't going to trust his sins or his righteousness. He knew all our righteousness is filthy rags. He, people need to repent, not only of this sin and that sin. I murdered somebody. I cheated on my wife. stole something. They need to repeat, repent of sin. And repentance means to have a change of mind. That's what it means. A change of mind. Metanoeo. Neo is from noose. A change of thinking. A change of thinking about God, about life, about ourselves, about sin. A change of mind, and it's part of saving faith. We're saved by faith, but repentance is part of faith. The Bible says repent and believe the gospel. Have a change of mind about where you are. That's what this is talking about. When we come to the decisions that we make. Some have to repent of really bad things that they've done. And we, have all, we all do that. And by the way, we should be repenters our whole life. <laughs> Believers never stop repenting because we never stop failing. If you read the book of Revelation 2 and 3, you'll see that. 
But we all, having said that, there is a place where we realize, I've, I've blown it and I keep blowing it and I need a savior. And we need to repent, not just of the bad things we did, but even the good things we were trusting in to be okay with God that are filthy rags to him. God, forgive me that I ever went into this religion or this philosophy. I repent of my view of life. I need you. I need the cross. I need Jesus. I need to cast myself on him completely and totally and not on anything in myself. I need to be like that Puritan and run from my sins and, and, and run from my good works as well and run to Jesus alone. If you've never done that, may God help you. Maybe you're a pretty good person, but you've never believed in Christ. May the flame of the gospel do its work in your life. There's a church history series that came out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And F.F. Bruce, the famous New Testament scholar in the British Isles, wrote the first volume. It covered the first 800 years of the church. It was called The Spreading Flame. And uh, I only got three volumes of it. I, I always, most of my library I bought in pieces because I couldn't afford everything. I'd get something cheap. Another one was Skevington Wood, The Inextinguishable Blaze. Inextinguishable Blaze. The gospel has gone out into the world as a fire. Jesus set that fire. And it's dividing people, but it's also saving people. And some of the best things that can happen to a apostate church is to get divided. Or a family that's united in unbelief to get divided. Have a real Christian in there. May God help us to be that person. May God help us to be willing to lose a friendship to maybe have an opportunity to witness and tell someone, God loves you, Jesus died for you. Trust in him instead of yourself. Father, we thank you for the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are legally forgiven because he took our hell and punishment on himself. So we thank you for that wonderful good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We thank you that no matter how bad we've been or how good we think we are, we need the cross and we need the gospel May each one here respond as you would see fit. Amen.